but for now, let's jump into Isaiah chapter 40 in this series called Greatest Hits, where we're looking at 10 of the most popular verses in the Bible in their context and asking what we really discover when we read them in context. Um, this, we're kind of winding up this Greatest Hits series, uh, and then we're going to be studying Ecclesiastes this fall after Labor Day. So if you're wondering what's coming next, we're going to be, begin working through the book of Ecclesiastes the first Sunday after Labor Day. So, beginning in verse 27, Isaiah chapter 40. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. <clears throat> and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Lord, we thank you for your word, and God, we humble ourselves before it. Lord, we come now not to act or be busy, but to quiet ourselves at your feet. For we know in your presence our words should be few and our hearts open. And so, God, we ask that you would use these words to speak and form our lives, that as creator who spoke this world into existence and shaped the heavens and this earth, Lord, that you would speak into our lives and shape, Lord, the features of it, that we would be people who trust in your faithfulness, who long for your promise and wait with endurance. And we pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. <coughs> well, listen, learning to wait is an important part of life, isn't it? Listen, I, I, I've I got four daughters, and that means I am the only man in a house with five ladies who I love, but I spend a lot of my time kind of waiting, just being honest. Well, you know, there was a survey recently that I found, and, uh, and it was talking about how much Americans wait for things. And I don't know if you knew this, but uh, Americans wait on average 20 minutes a day for the bus or the train or some kind of transportation. Now, maybe you don't do that, but on average, Americans wait 20 minutes a day for the bus or train or transportation. They wait 32 minutes whenever they visit a doctor. Americans wait 28 minutes in security lines whenever they travel. I mean, that feels a little short to me. I don't know about you. Some of you guys probably have that fast pass stuff, you know. Um, they wait, Americans wait 13 hours annually on hold for customer service. Now that sounds right, except for that might be a little low too. I mean, isn't it just terrible to wait, even through the prompts when you know you're waiting on a robot to finish their sentence? We wait all the time. On average, Americans wait 38 hours each year in traffic. 
And given the traffic problems in greater D.C., we've got to be the ones pulling that average up, right? Those living in big cities, it's said, wait more than 50 hours annually. That all told means Americans wait about 37 billion hours each year in line or in traffic or in some other way. Human beings spend approximately six months of their lives waiting in line for things. It means like three days a year just lining up. The average person spends 43 days on hold with automated customer service in their lifetime. So Isaiah 40.31 is a verse about waiting. And, and, and I think it's not surprising that we would, we would find that Isaiah 40, 31, where it's a verse about waiting, is one of the most popular verses in the Bible because we spend so much of our time waiting. But, but the truth is, the kind of waiting that we were just talking about is rather trivial, isn't it? The real difficulty is actually when we're waiting for critical things in our life. When we're waiting for God's plan to become clear, or we're, we're waiting to see what purpose there might be in a situation that we are finding difficult. And so this is one of the most famous verses in the Bible because it deals with waiting, and we really need help with waiting when it really matters. This passage speaks to the, the deep tension many people have as they deal with, uh, with waiting the tension between where they're at in life or in a given set of circumstances and what they know God has promised for the future. And it captures the spiritual experience of moments in life where faith meets reality and requires us to wait for what the Lord is doing. I spend a lot of my time as a pastor uh, talking with people who are, who are trying to make decisions about their future. And, and many times it, it becomes clear as we have those conversations that it's not really time to make the decision. And we have to wait. Waiting is hard. Listen, if we are going to have a genuine God-centered spirituality, one that is centered on who God really is, not who we want Him to be, or not our own timetable, if we're going to have a God-centered spirituality, we are going to have to learn to wait on the Lord with faith. And that's really what this passage is about. It's about what it takes for us to learn to wait. How it is we can become a faithfully waiting people when in so many ways we've learned to be hyperactive. I mean, I don't know about you, but I, I look at my life and as I reflect on my life, I know I struggle with hyperactivity. I don't like to wait for anything. I want to go make things happen rather than wait around. And so if I'm going to fall on the wrong side, it's going to always be on overaction rather than waiting. And so I've had to learn that there are many times where I cannot take good action until I've waited on what the Lord is doing. But this is the main idea of this passage, that genuine faith requires learning to wait on the Lord. And as we look closely, I think it can, can help teach us some things as Isaiah is instructing the Israelites about what it's going to be like for them to wait for God's promise to be unveiled and brought to life in front of them, that as he's helping them, we can also learn what it looks like to wait on the Lord with faith, because genuine faith requires learning to wait on the Lord. So 
So how do we do that? Well, the passage helps us in at least three ways that I want to highlight. And if you're taking notes, um, you, you may just uh, get ready to write down a couple things that are on the screen. The first thing we see in this passage is that I learn to wait on the Lord when I confront my own limitations and failures. How do I learn to wait? Well, I begin to learn to wait on the Lord when I begin to confront my own limitations and failures for solving the problems of the future. There's a dynamic going on here in this passage that I want to point out to you that is extremely important to see. To be able to understand what Isaiah, the writer, is challenging the original hearers to do. It's about getting real with ourselves about our limits and our weakness. You see, Isaiah the prophet, he's speaking to the soul of the people of Israel as they are going through correction from God for their generational wickedness and idolatry. And in a way, Isaiah has insight into their experience. And he's speaking directly sort of into the soul of their experience, of what they're asking, what they're wondering as they're waiting for this promise that God has made. And he's speaking to them and raising the sort of question, saying, why are you thinking this way? So as we see it in the text, when we have to wait or endure something uncomfortable, we often say things and think things that are obviously false. Now let me say that again. When we have to endure something uncomfortable, something difficult, a set of circumstances that we're not sure how to navigate, we often begin to say things that are basically a little crazy. We, we get rattled. As soon as we become vulnerable to our circumstances, we're quick to just start sort of with our words or with our thoughts, begin to try to shuffle the deck of what we think we really know or understand, and that's what's going on. You know, fatigue pushes us to that place, the endurance of waiting, and here we begin to see it in verse 27. He says, why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? You see what they're doing? This people who are having to wait on him, they are immediately beginning to say, God can't see what's going on. My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by God. Now that's a little crazy. It's okay, we all say crazy things. Look what they're saying. God doesn't see me. God doesn't see me, and I'm being treated unjustly by God. This is, what it, this is what it feels like it, to wait, it, doesn't it? At times when we think God ought to hurry up and get on our time schedule. When things are heavy or difficult. When we're feeling the pinch of our experience. God, you can't see me. It's, you must not even be looking. Surely you wouldn't leave me in this situation. I mean, can't you see what I'm going through? This isn't fair, God. You're not, you're not giving me what I deserve. And Isaiah's first response is to say, why are you saying that? <laughs> yeah, here's why. This is why it's important for them. Now, if you had time to understand what's going on clearly in the context of Isaiah, you'd have probably the same response as Isaiah here. In the background, God has offered his way to them. 
several times, and the people of Israel have instead decided to act out of their own effort. They've faced the trouble of impending armies and threats from the nations around them, and, and, and each time they've decided to form their own alliances when God has asked them to do specific things. If you begin to read the beginning of Isaiah, God gives them an instruction about what to do, and it looks a lot like waiting. And they instead go out and they form alliances of convenience to solve the impending problems in their own way. And God continues to say to them, this isn't going to work. And he, over and over, he warns them about what's going to happen. They face key situation after key situation, trusting in their own strength and ingenuity. And now they find themselves in a difficult situation and they want to blame God. So, so listen, friends, any time in life that we have to come face to face with circumstances or trials or challenges in our lives, we tend to do what the people of Israel were doing here. We confront God before we confront ourselves. You see, what they're doing is confronting God for not doing what they're asking him to do rather than confronting themselves for ignoring his instruction about what it would look like if they would wait on him. And, and so, here, here they are, they're confronting God rather than confronting themselves. God isn't paying attention. God isn't there. God isn't going to help. God doesn't care about me. These are the words of despairing people who have tried to come to grips with life on their own without much reference to what God is actually saying about what's going on around them. You know, so many times when we think about our own spiritual lives, we give very little thought to like the big picture of what God might be doing in the world around us. You know, we, we know what we want to happen for us personally and individually, but we never think, you know, in, in what ways may God be doing something bigger than just my individual situation? How might he want me to see something more that he is doing? And we're tempted to confront God about what he's not changing in our situation rather than to confront ourselves about uh, our overconfidence in our own ability. Our overconfidence in our own wisdom, our overconfidence in our own provision and strength and ability to protect ourselves from the circumstances in life. And sometimes God brings us into situations in life that show us where we're really at. He shows how incapable we are. I don't, I don't know if you've been in those, but there's been a few times in my life where I realized that no matter what action I took, there's nothing I could do to fix what was broken. And we've got to confront that. Some of us don't want to. And it's a lot easier just to confront God about not being on our agenda rather than confronting ourselves about how often we're not on His. So this is one way you might apply this. You know, Facing life on your own wisdom, resource, and strength is a foolish venture, and we've often disregarded God in the way that we do it. Isaiah's trying to wake us up to see how foolish it is. Consider how he continues in verse 30 to highlight it. Look with me. In, in verse 30, he says, Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. It, it, it's, 
this is Isaiah continuing to reason with the people of Israel about their overconfidence and their strength. And I want to say the tone of this passage isn't just rebuke, it's pleading. He's, he he's actually really wants them to see it and to get it so that they can come to the end of their own strength and receive what the good thing that God really wants to do. Because in this passage, in Isaiah 40, God has shifted to making a, a promise that has overwhelming hope and joy for the future of Israel and its people. But, but they need to realize they're not capable of bringing it about for themselves. They're going to have to wait with patient endurance. So he says here in verse 30, the highest capacity people in the prime of their strength, are no match for the demands of life. That's what verse 30 is talking about. He says, even youths grow weary. Like, no matter how young you are, how much energy you have, you get tired. Even at the, the peak of a young man's life, he spends about a third of his day sleeping just to recover strength to work another day. You see, this is who we are. We're, we're a people who, who lay in utter weakness at least a third of our life and then aren't sure what to do on probably another third of the day with the many things that we face. And no matter how well things are going for you right now, you probably uh, soon going to encounter some things in your life that will sap your strength entirely and call for an endurance that goes beyond your personal capabilities. And you'll find yourself exhausted trying to manage life. I mean, maybe it's just me. Maybe there's some of you out there who have experienced this. But life has a way of sapping even the strong. So, so here, what's going on is he's reminding of this. If you're going to go it alone and believe you can build your own life apart from God, even contrary to what God is doing, you need to confront the reality of your own weakness and your failures up to this point. And then, and only then, will you gain the ability to wait on the Lord's way forward. Until you're convinced that you must have God's strength, you must have God's way, you must have God's wisdom, or, or everything else will fa fall and fade, you're going to continue to hyperactively go it on your own, believing in your own strength. So we've got to learn this if we're going to wait. We're going to have to confront and learn to confront our own sense of weakness and even failure. The second thing we're going to have to learn if we are going to be able to wait on the Lord is we're going to have to learn to clarify our relationship with God. We're going to have to learn to clarify our relationship with God. We've talked a lot about our own weakness, but verses 28 and 29 give us a contrast that help us see God. Verses 28 and 29 are really the power center of this passage. These verses refocus us on who God is when we're tempted to discard what we may already know. I had a, I had a conflict with uh, someone a while back. Now, maybe you're, not, maybe you're a little like me. I don't really enjoy conflict. I mean, I think that's pretty natural. It is certainly necessary to work through disagreement at times, but in our current cultural climate, uh, conflict often seems to boil over into something uh, that, that looks 
hurtful and personal and can be pretty tough to deal with. So, so I was in this situation and, and I was sweating that I needed to deal with it. And one of the things that we sometimes do when we're in conflict is we imagine the situation uh, that is happening and the things that we, some, we, we imagine the things that are going to happen as sort of a worst case scenario experience. Are any of you like this? You begin to game plan what this conversation is going to be like or what this situation is going to be like and you start to think like about the worst case scenario of how that's going to be and it only kind of tightens up the tension in your life and, and, and makes you less likely to engage or solve the problem. Am I alone? Is this just me? I'll just have a therapy session up here, work this out with you. Okay, we're getting some, some, some hands on this. Appreciate that. Um, you know, and, and so, so I played out this whole terrible scene in my head for a number of days, and I began to form an image of how it might go and what this person might do, and it was just weighing on me. And, uh, you know, do you know what happened when we got together to talk? The most reasonable and kind and encouraging conversation. <laughs> it was like totally the opposite of, of what I had expected. And while I was having the conversation and the feeling and feeling the relief, I thought, huh, I forgot how kind and reasonable this person was. I mean, have you ever been there where like the, the, the specter of conflict robbed you of what you already know about a person? And, and you just sort of forget just how kind and reasonable the person is and you have the experience of, uh, of being reminded when you actually get present with them and you're faced with their reality rather than what you've made up in your head. Well, this is what's going on. Israel has forgotten in this passage who they are talking about when they're talking about God. And Isaiah is here to remind them so that they can learn to trust him in what they are facing. They've determined that God is, has forgotten them and is against them, but this whole chapter is about reminding them that the reason that God hasn't just fixed their immediate situation is because God is, is so transcendent and greater than what they have remembered, and He's doing more than they could have ever imagined. So, so what is happening in verses 28 and 29 is Isaiah is summarizing the rest of what he said in verses 1 through 26 of chapter 40. It's a word from God, actually, to the people of Israel that begins, comfort, comfort my people. God wants them to be comforted while they wait. And it's an overwhelming message of hope to a people who have faced exile from their land and aren't sure if there will ever be a time when they're renewed and restored and find rejoicing again. But it's a word of comfort and promise. In verses 1 through 11, if you were to look at chapter 40, in verses 1 through 11, he's going to come to them. He says, he says, there's coming a day when I'm coming as a mighty king and with the heart of a humble shepherd. He's not out of control in the face of the might of Assyria and the Babylonian empires. He's the creator with all power to bring about his will. He's not out of ideas about what to do in their situation or yours. He's the all-wise God who understands the deep workings of everything in the universe. Isaiah 40, verses 13 and 14 says, Who has measured the Spirit of the Lord? Meaning, who can really understand the inward nature of God, the things that He hasn't yet displayed to us? Who can even begin to plumb the depths of God's deep understanding and wisdom and knowledge? 
And the answer is no one. He goes on to say, what man shows him counsel? Whom did he consult? And who made him understand? Like, like who, is, who is God's teacher? And the answer is no one. Who taught him the path of justice? For people who are saying that's not fair. No one taught God justice. He's the source of justice. Who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? And the answer is no one. God possesses all of these in infinite supply. An abundant supply of power and authority and wisdom and knowledge and creativity belong to the God who is also the, the unending supply of energy. God hasn't wearied from caring for them. And so he says, Isaiah says in, in, in 28, in summary, that the Lord, the God of Jacob and Israel, is the everlasting God, the God who has no beginning and end. He didn't get fueled up and he's not going to run out. He is the creator. He is the one who gives to all things life and vitality. He can't be shrunk by our criticism. We can bring our criticism to him and it's not going to shrink him one bit from being who he really is. We will discover afresh who God is when we draw near to him. He doesn't grow weary like us. He has wisdom that is unsearchable to us not even able we're not even able to find the bottom of it not only are we unable to fully comprehend the wisdom of God we really can't even begin to search it out because we're that limited yet God is infinitely wise so he says this about God but now here's the good news if that wasn't good, good enough news to know this is who we're talking about when we're talking about God, here's the good news. And, and this is what makes this passage particularly powerful. That same God with everlasting power, the creator of all things, who has unsearchable wisdom, he says, he, that God, gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Did you get that? The transcendent God, the God who is just almost beyond our ability to touch and see and know and understand that God is also the God who comes to you personally in your moment. He's so powerful, so available, so infinite, and so wise that even in a room this size, he knows every situation. You come in Week by week, we want to be a church that experiences community to know one another, to understand what's going on in one another's lives. And that's so important. We, we want to be that for one another, to really understand and help navigate spiritually what's going on. But the truth is, we can't even scratch the surface of the conversation going on in your heart, the fears you have, the concerns, the past experiences that still bring heartache to you. God knows it. You know, I often, as a pastor, feel at a loss to be able to give wise counsel or advice because I just, I can't see, right? I, I don't know what's coming. I don't know what you really think. I don't know how rooted you are in what God has promised, where your understanding is at or your capabilities or what's happened to you. It's got you hung up. 
It's impossible to know those things. Therefore, I, I don't really know how to give advice many times. What can guarantee that you'll thrive in the future? That's way beyond my ability or anyone else's to speak to with a sense of authority. But God knows every one of your situations. Every one. And he knows how to meet the need. And he knows what he's doing. He knows that he knows how he is working, what it takes for you, you specifically. You know, I've often felt at a loss to be able to help someone who is struggling to trust God by faith, to really establish a relationship with God and, and believe in the gospel, like come to understand. But God infinitely knows how to meet you where you're at if you're willing to come to him as someone who is desperate in your weakness to know him. That God knows exactly what it would take for you to, to begin to thrive in walking with Him. If you will draw near as one who is faint-hearted, one who is weary, one who has come to the end of your own strength, and you, you say, God, I know that I can't solve the problems of my life. I know that I don't have the wisdom for the future, but God, I am coming to you as one who understands my weakness, my limitations, and I see that you are the all-wise God, and I'm resting it in your hands, and I'm willing to wait. And he knows. And he can be trusted. And this is, the, this is the paradox. You may believe God is waiting for you to be strong in your situation. And he is really waiting for you to acknowledge your weakness. God has no intention of glorifying human strength. I don't, I don't know if you know that, but God has no intention of glorifying human strength. And he has every intention of showing up in human weakness. He, he has no intention of sharing his glory as the one who is, has all power with anyone else. But he's happy to give his power to those who will give glory to him. <laughs> you see, here he says, even young men will faint. But God, the infinite God, is personally willing to come to you if you're willing to acknowledge your weakness. Isaiah's claim here about God and his relationship to us is most clearly seen when God later sends the king, Jesus, as a humble shepherd. The one who is the creator took on flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus came and displayed his power over everything that torments the human experience, we see that displayed in the Gospels. But his greatest power was seen in his willingness to sacrifice his own life on the cross as a sacrifice and substitute for our sin. And in doing so, what he did was surrendered his own strength as the Son of God to the power of the Father's heart to sustain him and raise him from the dead. And by doing so, he made a way for us to become totally secure and confident that we have a relationship with God. And it's not by flexing our spiritual muscle, but by admitting our total inability to measure up to God's calling and standard for our lives 
in discovering that God gives grace and power to those who come to Him with the open hands of faith. And I just wonder, has there been a time in your life where you realized that, that you don't have the power to bring yourself to God? That you don't have the power to turn yourself into someone who's spiritually mature? That all power belongs to God and it begins with those who surrender and wait on Him. So even in this moment today, the Creator God may be coming to you personally. Maybe, maybe in, in all of this is a review for a bunch of people, but for you, it's the first time you've really sensed that God wants you to respond and do something with this. Will you admit your sin, the failures of your past, the, the inability to save yourself this morning? from all you face, and put your trust in what Jesus has done for you on the cross to secure a relationship to God that comes with experiencing and knowing His eternal blessing. Jesus said, all who are weary and heavy laden may come. Not all who are strong and have it together. But the one requirement for coming to Jesus is weariness over our inability. And maybe you just haven't yet come to a point where you've been able to say to God, I'm weary of trying on my own. And I'm ready to surrender to you. Thank you for sending Jesus. Rescue me, save me. Put your spirit in my life. Transform me. And today, God's calling on you to respond. Asking for you to respond. That's our invitation today. The last thing we need to learn is we need to learn to count on the Lord's renewing strength. So what does it look like practically then? When you've clarified your relationship with God, you understand His power, His wisdom. What do I do as I face the many challenges that life brings while waiting for God to fulfill the promises of salvation in my life and future? Well, the answer from Isaiah is, Learn the experience of waiting on the Lord. Those who have the right understanding of their weakness and, and the right understanding of who God is, they learn to wait on God when they don't understand what He is doing in the present. Some seasons are for waiting. We begin to embrace that some seasons in our life are for waiting. They're not for doing. They're not for accomplishing. They're for letting God do what we can't do for ourselves. It's important to learn to wait. Because the largest promises of God are often yet future for his people. For Israel in this circumstance, in this passage, they are early on in the experience of being an exiled people. But the whole section of Isaiah we're in says that God will renew them. Promises to bring them back to the land of promise and restore them. What are they going to do to make it happen? They're going to wait. They're going to wait until God does it. This passage in Isaiah 40, this whole chapter, points forward with its imagery to another future thing they would wait on, to the coming of the promised Savior, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. A divine king who is described, who will shepherd the peoples, all the peoples of the earth, and not just Israel, into a real relationship with God. Now what could be done to bring the Messiah? Nothing but waiting. They just had to wait. 
even with the coming of Christ, us living on this side of that advent, our sins, they have been forgiven. Our relationship with God has been opened through the shed blood of Jesus and the resurrection. We've been promised that God will raise us up with him and renew all of creation from the ruining effects of sin and evil. What can we do to bring this about? Our greatest future blessing. We wait for him. We wait. All through the New Testament, we're reminded that the future promises of God are worth waiting for, even if through trial and suffering and difficulty. In our scripture reading this morning, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And he goes on to say, what do we do? We wait with eager longing. Part of being a Christian is waiting with eager longing while we live in the tension of a fallen and broken world, trusting God. We have hope. We don't, we don't go all, all the way down into despair because we've got hope. We have a promise, but we have to wait because it's hard. We have to learn to wait. But waiting on the Lord is not an entirely passive thing. We wait for God while remaining faithful to his promises and relying on him for renewed strength and trust when we're weak. Waiting is an act of faith that shapes our decisions and shapes what we are really counting on God for. Let me just mention a couple things about waiting as we close, and then we're going to pray. First, to wait, we act like God is working. How do we wait? What does it look like to actively wait? We act... We, we live as though we anticipate that God is working. Waiting is an act of faith that shapes our decisions and what we're counting on God for. The sower that plants the seed waits even though growth is not in its power. The person who shares the gospel with another person waits on God to work in his power to bring someone to faith. The person who commits to a life of righteousness and justice knows the harvest may be a long way off. You can work while you wait and truly be waiting. You can pray while you wait and truly be waiting. You can desire things while you wait and truly be waiting. Waiting is a heart condition about where you've placed your expectations. So we, we learn to wait while acting like God is at work. Second, we take refuge in God's wisdom while we wait. Waiting means that God has his own reasons and timetables that are unavailable to us. And so waiting means allowing God to determine his reasons and timetables even when we don't understand them. Tim Keller once said something to the effect that a God big enough to blame for our trials is also big enough to have reasons beyond our understanding for leading us through them. If we imagine a God that's big enough to take the blame for our trials, he's also a God that is big enough to have reasons beyond our understanding for why we're walking through them. You really can't have it both ways. His ways can be truly unsearchable at times. But this passage says we won't be disappointed if we let him resolve the future for us and wait on him for answers. Lastly, we wait with an anticipation of God's provision. Listen, we all get weary 
But what Isaiah really is pointing to here is that God has promised that all along the way we will find renewing strength and provision that is on time. The strength is promised when it is needed and not ahead of time. And maybe you're in that season where you're weary and you're wondering, is there any provision along the way? And the answer is, as we wait on the Lord, trust in the Lord, we find renewed strength in God's time. And we we live as people who anticipate God's provision for the difficult moments. And I promise you, as I've seen time after time, in the most difficult moments, God has provision stored up that we could never anticipate. He's faithful. And that provision allows us to rise up on wings like eagles in times that we seem like we would only be grounded. It allows us to run with a sort of endurance of a distance runner that goes beyond our imagination and at times it just helps us to walk on. And so this is what Isaiah wants us to be confident of. Really who God is and what he's doing to wait patiently for the promise. And I wonder Is there something right now that you just need to learn to wait on the Lord for? Something that you need to entrust to him this morning. That it's in God's time and purpose to reveal what he desires, what he's going to do, how he's going to resolve it. Maybe that he's not going to resolve it now. And you'll learn to wait. But maybe maybe God's calling you to surrender something that you've wanted changed, wanted to fix in your own strength. And he's calling you to wait on him. Let's go into a time of prayer as we prepare to close our service. And just for a moment, right there where you're at, just take a moment to respond to the Lord. The worship team's going to join me on stage for a closing song this morning. But before we just move on through the day and through our week, Maybe God's spoken to you in a particular way. The best thing you could do is take a moment right now. Just respond to him as we pray. Just lift that situation up to the Lord and devote it to him. God, we confess our own weakness, our own lack of wisdom. How often, Lord, we are stretched beyond measure. But God, we put confidence in you. As we've been reminded from your word, you're a shepherd who loves us. Who both has the power of a king, but the heart of a caretaker. And so, God, we're grateful for that. And, Lord, we come with the things that have us weary and heavy laden and burdened. And, God, we ask that you would help us to be faithful in waiting on you. Lord, we want you to be glorified in our life, in our families, in our churches, in ways that would show that we believe that you are worth waiting for, that your promises are good, that they're better than forfeiting to have anything else in this world. And so, God, we entrust those things to you. I pray, Lord, for those here who may be struggling in a deep way right now in a season of trial where they're waiting on answers and 
or they feel like they're not getting them, I pray, God, that you'd help them to find refuge in your word, your deep abiding love for them. I pray that they would find that in this season of difficulty, Lord, that you have laid up provision for them along the road. Lord, would you allow them to experience that? Lord, I pray for the person who may be here today who doesn't have a relationship with you, Lord, that you would draw them into a clear place of repentance and faith, that they would trust that through your son, Jesus Christ, you have promised your love over their lives if they will entrust it to him. Lord, help them even now to respond, to call on you in faith for your saving work in their life. Lord, we just ask that as we sing and close this morning, Lord, that you would be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen.